Justice is a struggle. You have to be in the struggle and you have to keep going because if not you, then who else? The people who are putting us in this position to constantly fight every single day for our autonomy are never going to just grant us the rights that we deserve. I have no excuse to feel burnt out or like I can't give anything when I see people every day who I admire really deeply who put so much on the line. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today I speak to Senti Sojual and Tiffany Diane So, founding members of the Asian American Feminist Collective, a grassroots racial and gender justice group that works to interrogate and dismantle systems of racism, patriarchy, and capitalism by telling their stories through various modes of feminist media, while providing spaces for identity exploration, political education, community building, and advocacy. In our conversation, we explored a host of topics, including the legacy of feminist activism that undergirds their work, the intersectional identities that inform the AAFC, how black feminist thought has influenced them, their hashtag This is Asian America on Instagram, how reproductive justice is key to understanding how colonial power functions, what tokenism is and how it differs from genuine inclusion, and how allyship can actually work in a useful, non-performative way. In their words, Asian American feminism is an ever-evolving practice that seeks to address the multidimensional ways Asian American people confront systems of power at the intersections of race, gender, class, sexuality, religion, disability, migration history, and citizenship status. These are great women doing great work in the world. I enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Thanks so much. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having us today. I'm Senti Sojwal. Um, I'm a co-founder of the Asian American Feminist Collective. I'm based in New York, and I'm a first-generation Indian American immigrant. I'm Tiffany Diane So. Pronouns are she, her. I'm also a co-founder and co-leader of the Asian American Feminist Collective with Senti and some others. I'm also a freelance journalist and editor based in Brooklyn, New York. Your work is based on a kind of intersectional feminist belief and values. I would love it if you could speak a bit about the various intersectional identities that inform the Asian American Feminist Collective. Yeah, that's a great question. I think something that we think and talk about a lot is that in the United States, Asian Americans are considered to be a monolith. There's usually a particular idea or perception that people have of who is Asian American. Usually that means someone who is educated, upwardly mobile, and has had you know, access and visibility in society and is not really considered to be a person of color in some ways, but is still considered to be sort of othered from whiteness. Also, usually Asian American in the United States means East Asian. It means someone who looks a very specific way. And part of the work that we want to do is really dismantle that monolithic conception of who is Asian American and what it means to be Asian American. Even the term Asian American is something we struggle with because it's such a vast population of people you're talking about. You're talking about literally hundreds of racial identities, ethnic identities, religious identities, like I myself am South Asian, I'm Indian. I don't often see, for example, people like me, people who are brown or come from multi-ethnic backgrounds uh, represented in conversations about the Asian American diaspora. And you know, talking about intersections, it's also like 
you don't really see a lot of queer Asian American visibility, trans Asian American visibility, a huge swath of Asian Americans in the United States live in poverty and face huge economic struggle. And those aren't really the stories that are amplified in our culture when you think of who is Asian American. And so when it comes to like the different identities or intersections that we represent or work within, I think a lot of what we're trying to do is just complicate and expand the notion of who is Asian American and bring all of those other identities to the forefront of what we do in our activist work together. You talk about the legacy of feminist activism that informs your work and your politics, including the third world feminist movements of the 1960s. I would love to hear more about this legacy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so going back to your last question about intersectionality and Senti, your answer was so perfect for that. I feel like we do need to, of course, give homage to the Black feminists, such as Kimberly Crenshaw, who came up with this framework of intersectionality that really informs our feminism as we have differentiated ourselves from, right, like mainstream white feminist movements. We are, you know, aiming to define a lot of these different intersections that Asian American feminists like live on. A big part of our work really also speaks to like cross-racial feminist movements and that, you know, has been very much informed by past feminist movements such as, you know, the third world feminists. I feel like it's just really important for us to not only, you know, define ourselves within our own, our own racial and political identities, but also, you know, within a larger women of color, our feminists of color, um, you know, movement. Whenever we have seen women of color come together on our shared and like disparate causes we've really found our voices to be so much more powerful right um our issues more amplified and you know we've been more successful and so i do feel like uh while of course we organize under asian american you know as our political identity we also do want to make sure that that is still connected to a much larger network. A lot of us too, there are five of us on leadership at AAFC. And I think for many of us, like black feminist thought was really what brought us into our own political analyses of what feminism means and can be. I think in this country, white feminism has always been self-serving. You know, you think about the, like the suffragette movement that was really about granting white women the right to vote. It wasn't really rooted in a a liberatory understanding of struggle that like for all of us to win we must all be included and like there's no real advancement in society or culture if it only serves a certain group of people and so we we owe such a huge debt of gratitude to black feminist thought and leadership that i think also historically really rooted feminist liberation in socialism and socialist ideals. Like when you go back and look at someone, a group like the Kombahi River Collective, like they were very explicitly black feminist socialists. And that's something we really appreciate in a time now too, where there are a lot of ongoing cultural conversations about like the utility of feminism, even like, do we still need this? Or like, if we really are trying to create a society for everybody, like why are we creating these divisions without really understanding that the reason we're even in this place to be able to have political debate in this way is like because there were people who came before us who were brave and smart enough to say like, 
my oppression is rooted in my gender in this way. And so my liberation has to be rooted in an understanding of gendered oppression as well. And I really think we have Black feminists to thank for that. Can you talk about your hashtag, this is Asian America Instagram series? Yeah. So this is something we launched a few years ago um, when we were sort of starting to build our online presence. So as I mentioned that one of our goals is really to disrupt this cultural notion that Asian Americans are a monolith. You know, I was thinking about my own family history and story. I'm Indian. I look very racially ambiguous. My mom is from really far Northeastern India, like basically on the Burmese border. Her family is indigenous to that part of India and she looks very Chinese. And my dad is from central India. So they look really different. They really share nothing by way of, you know, their common language is English. They grew up eating totally different foods and being part of totally different cultures. And I mean, India in itself is a country of more than like 300 languages, so many different ethnic identities. And it's a very, very diverse place in and of itself in just one country. People are always like surprised that I'm Indian because of the way that I look. And so I was thinking a lot about how I have so many Asian American friends who come from really similarly interesting, complicated backgrounds, who all came to this country um, in different ways, have really varying family histories that brought them to America. So we started the This is Asian America hashtag to be able to tell our stories. There are really incredible stories outlined in that series of like, you know, one of our friends whose parents were Vietnamese boat refugees, our friend Rachel, whose parents came from Taiwan, and how like they had a bookshop when they first moved here. And other friends whose families have been here for generations and generations, you know, a lot of people who are Japanese American, really their families go back five or six generations because there were so many Japanese immigrants who came here in like the 1930s and 40s. And so the point of the series is really to be able to amplify and share these stories to show that our community isn't a monolith and there are as many different ways to be Asian American as there are us in this nation, you know, which is so many. Can you please talk about the rise in anti-Asian violence that has been contiguous with the pandemic and how this has a historical context in the United States? Yeah, I guess I'll try to. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess we've been talking about anti-Asian violence as long as COVID-19 has been like a presence, right, in our news. Because, you know, even before COVID waves hit the U.S., or at least before we were aware, there had already been, you know, kind of spates of like anti-Asian violence or incidents. You know, we were hearing about like Chinatown uh, restaurants, you know, being like, or lacking customers or people, you know, saying racist things to Asian people passing by. And um, I think that obviously as this pandemic has continued for much longer than, you know, people had originally been promised, It's just been worsening and worsening. And, you know, we have been seeing rises in violent incidents, um, including, you know, incidents of mass murder, which it's been kind of allowing people to 
finally like see us I think which is kind of a terrifying thing to think about right is that like the violence against our communities is what is making us visible to so much of America who haven't really necessarily given one or two thoughts about Asian communities that they might be neighboring or maybe haven't really like seen much of but have seen in movies like represented as crazy rich Asians but you know it's it's something that we've been grappling with now and I think that it has been being talked about as some sort of like a new phenomenon but of course given that we do have a long history in this country you know starting in the like 17th century it's not anything new and you know being Asian America has been marked by xenophobia and violence and you know racism <laughs> prejudice you know all across the board um our presence in this country has always been violent. And, you know, since we've been here, they've been trying to kick us out, right? Like, there are, are the first uh, immigration, the first, like, you know, anti-immigration, rather, um, uh, legislation in this country, right, that officially closed borders for everyone was uh, one that specifically targeted Chinese women. And that was um, the 1875 Page Act. Uh, and then after that, of course, people probably know more about the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, which, you know, was is much more, I guess, broad, obviously, against Asian immigrants in general. But um, the Page Act was actually incredibly um, uh, stigmatizing and actually sexualized because it was specifically targeted towards Chinese women under the guise that Chinese women are coming to America for prurient purposes such as prostitution, ultimately, you know, to come to America to spread venereal diseases to white men, which they can't have. And, you know, I feel like while obviously that history is very much buried, we don't learn about that in high school or, you know, in any of our schooling, I don't think, at least I didn't until I was, you know, in my 20s. I do think that that has informed a lot of, you know, the American imagination about Asian women. And it's been replicated right through our, you know, movies, media, the way that Asian women are always kind of like portrayed as sexually available, you know, submissive, you know, white worshiping, uh, disposable. And I think that this is all just kind of like constantly replicated in the way that we're represented in the ways that, you know, um, U.S. Army uh, military bases, right, um, interact with Asian women near their bases, right? There's like always going to be a lot of like sex work in those, you know, spaces, and just the way that, you know, we're, we're treated here at home, I feel like it's, it's all going to obviously be interconnected. There's no way for us to like extract ourselves from that, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, so it, it's, I guess what I'm just saying is that it is nothing new. It's something that we've all been aware of. I think that kind of that more in your face, you know, violence and like, you know, vitriol, that kind of racism might be something that people are just encountering more for the first time now, you know, because it's become so widespread. But um, of course, I think history tells us, you know, not just with like the Page Act, but with like, you know, the murder of Vincent Chin, um, you know, with like uh, the mass, you know, there have been actually like mass lynchings of like Asian communities in this country. It's all just always been informed by xenophobia, competition, right? Labor competition um, of US workforces, right? Against like the other who is coming in and like working for less and just, you know, obviously like white supremacy. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah, let's talk some more about sex and sex worker rights. You have an alliance with this Flushing-based sex worker rights group, Red Canary. You know, we've actually been in connection or in contact with Red Canary Song ever since they 
started. They were founded a year after um, the murder of Yang Song. Uh, Yang Song was a massage parlor worker who during a NYPD vice raid fell to her death, um, you know, at her workplace, which was an illicit massage parlor. I'm doing little quotes. We ended up speaking at a vigil, you know, one year after her passing. Um, We co-produced, you know, co-led a vigil for the anniversary of the eight lives lost in Atlanta during the Atlanta spa shootings. Um, That was in March 2021. A white man went to three different Asian massage parlors and mass murdered people. And six of those people were Asian, Chinese, or Korean, um, you know, immigrant massage parlor workers. And yeah, Red Canary Song has always been, you know, since their foundation has been a voice advocating for amplifying, you know, massage workers, especially those who are Asian migrant massage workers. AAFC, as soon as we had been invited by them to speak or to support their causes, were immediately on board. Um, And I think that something that was very unique actually at the time was that in the wake of Yang Song, Red Canary Song did talk about how they were having trouble getting Asian American, like specifically Asian American groups to co-sign into their cause or to like, you know, support their um, vigils. And that, you know, of course, more like sex worker um, organizations were uh, a lot more aligned and willing to participate. And I think that we have seen a a change in that, though, um, over the past few years of more Asian American groups being pro-sex worker rights, uh, abolitionist, you know, organizations. And I would like to think that, you know, AAFC being, you know, being so open and like so willing uh, early on to like stand behind these causes, which I think have been seen as more stigmatized. It's been a really important thing for us to like align ourselves with with sex workers, because we understand that a sex workers are workers, uh, sex workers work. And also, we know that, you know, the discrimination that Asian sex workers face is also discrimination that all Asian women face, uh, because we are typecasted and stereotyped as sex workers, as we've seen with the Page Act, right, is that it doesn't matter whether or not we are sex workers, we are always going to be discriminated against in the same way that Asian sex workers are. I think that we also need to, as Asian Americans, expand on our working class solidarity. Um, I feel like a lot of the times, right, Sentihan mentioned earlier in this interview that Asian American activism is can be centered toward, um, you know, like the upwardly mobile, um, you know, middle class to upper middle class, like Asian American issues, um, the mainstream Asian activism that is, and that we definitely want to push against that. We want to obviously, we want to be able to expand on what Asian American activism looks like. And that is, you know, across class, across across gender, sexuality, and migration stories, etc. So let's talk about Roe versus Wade. Um, with the imminent challenges here, it seems like reproductive rights are going to be a battleground in the very near future. Uh, Senti, you've, you've worked in the past in digital strategy at Planned Parenthood of Greater New York. Can you talk about reproductive rights and, and how they play into the, the mission of the Asian American Feminist Collective and what lies ahead? Yeah, of course. Um, well, there really can be no racial justice without reproductive freedom. You really can't exercise 
personal liberty or the ability to live your life and your own vision if you don't have autonomy over your own body. And I think reproductive health rights and justice are often another sphere where there's a real lack of Asian American representation. I will say that, you know, once again, as we were talking about the great debt that we owe to Black feminist thought leaders uh, as a reproductive justice activist, you know, that was really a movement that was begun by Black women as a sort of counter to the mainstream reproductive rights movement that really was solely focused on abortion without actually thinking in a much wider sense about what does it matter whether or not abortion is legal if people don't have real access to abortion? What does it mean to be able to think about choice and bodily autonomy as a woman of color, especially when you think about how this country was built on reproductive coercion? When we think about like enslavement of Black women and forced birth, that has a really deep connection to what's going on today and the many ways in which reproductive control is used as a tool by the state to really take away the autonomy of people of color. And so when it comes to Roe and how reproductive health rights and justice are so critical to racial justice in this country, Asian Americans are a huge part of that. I mean, there was a study done a few years ago by, I think it was NAPOF, which is the National Asian Amer National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, um, that is a reproductive justice group that focuses on um, Asian and Asian American communities that I think found that one fifth of Asian American women in New York City would require abortion care, which is really similar to rates for white women. Yet you never really get to hear stories and experiences of Asian American people who require abortion care. Also, oftentimes in this country, Asian Americans are used as a scapegoat for really restrictive abortion policy. So we can see that where there is, you know, the stereotype that Asians will only seek out abortion care because they don't want to bring like girl babies into this world, um, which obviously female infanticide is a real practice that does happen all over the world. Um, and it's definitely not just restricted to Asian countries, but oftentimes that is used as a tool for lawmakers who want to restrict abortion rights as a way to pretend like they are standing with or saving our community. But all that really does is further restrict abortion care for people who require it. And all that really does is further stigmatize abortion for people who need that. We know that when we restrict access to abortion, it's always low-income people who suffer the most, people of color, people who already struggle with access to healthcare, people who can afford to take time off of work, who can travel, who have money to pay for medical care, are always going to have access to abortion. And so um, abortion access is at its core a real racial justice issue. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And it's I mean, it's such depressing times. I don't know what your thoughts are. What, what gives you hope when you think about reproductive rights? Please give me something. <laughs> God, I don't know. I have to, I think something that gives me hope is just like the real resilience and dedication of our communities. I think hope is a discipline. That's definitely something that I think I have learned over and over again in my activism. And that doesn't mean that you always have to put on a brave face or pretend that everything's gonna be okay. I think it's about understanding that like, justice is a struggle and you have to be in the struggle and you have to keep going because if not you, then who else, you know? The people who are 
putting us in this position to constantly fight every single day for our autonomy and for our right to live our lives in the way that we see fit and the way that we need to are are never going to just grant us the rights that we deserve. Oftentimes those rights have to be demanded and taken by force and require us raising our voices every single day. And so I think about people who are so much less privileged than me, who have so much more to lose, who are like out there fighting every day. And I think like, I have no excuse to feel burnt out or like I can't give anything when I see people every day who I admire really deeply, who put so much on the line to fight for what matters. Mm-hmm. Well said. I appreciate that. I really do. Let's talk about tokenism, if you will. Tell me about the difference between genuine inclusion and engagement versus tokenism. I think it's all about the intention, right? I think if you're trying to meet a quota, or you're trying to get some sort of grant funding, or you're, you know, if, or if you're just trying to like outwardly look good, then, you know, that's tokenism. I think genuine inclusion uh, means that A, you know, you are setting up your space and your um, resources, et cetera, in a way that will make someone who is different, right, than your usual, which is, I guess, the only reason why inclusion is even necessary. (laughs) Inclusion is not necessary if you're already, right, a very diverse uh, space. But if you aren't already, then you need to create a space that is safe enough for someone to enter in. Also, you know, you need to make sure that you are, you know, doing it in a way that is actually celebrating, celebratory or like, you know, uplifting toward to these communities versus just in a way that brings them into a space that is hostile and white supremacist, right? And so I think that the kind of concept though of like tokenism is very prevalent in most, you know, institutions because I think a lot of the times, right, institutions are places where money is and whenever there is money and capitalism, a lot of the times, right, the people in power and like the stakeholders are white and wealthy and uh sadly that means that it doesn't you know create a very um inclusive or diverse space for everyone to thrive because of course right if we are all crabs in a barrel fighting to get out and like we all want to rise to the top then that's not going to be a very safe space right for everyone to feel celebrated comfortable you know like respected so yeah i think that that is a topic, right, to speak on in terms of the inclusion, right, of, like, people of color or of women, right, into male spaces, people of color into, like, white dominant spaces. But then I think even within our own feminist and women of color spaces, um, that's also an issue that we end up, right, like, coming across. So, for example, the Asian American Feminist Collective, we are five people, and so we have our backgrounds and our identities, but that doesn't encompass all of Asian America, obviously. And so we do have a lot of internal discussions often about what it means, right, to be um, Asian Americans who live at these different like intersections of our identities, but be wanting to, right, speak for, or not speak for, but speak on or, you know, help represent or just like, you know, encompass, right, the larger Asian American political identity and movement, you know, which we do not represent all of these identities. It all just boils down to, you know, like making sure that you're very intentional with 
whatever it is that you're trying to do and um, also have some like transparency, right? So if you are an institution, a collective, whatever you are, and you are trying to do something in terms of like diversity and inclusion, then you just have to be very transparent about like where you're coming from, uh, you know, what your intentions are and I guess like space or event, whatever it is that you're trying to create. And I feel like we, we do try to be very transparent about, you know, our identities, the stakes that we hold. And I don't know, I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's all I have right now. Sort of piggybacking on this, what does true diversity, equity, and inclusion look like? I mean, what what is what is the path? I mean, you spoke about transparency. Just curious about what do you wish people better understood about this conversation, if there's anything else? Oh, God. Literally everything. Um, <laughs> I think it's really important to remember that these are structural issues that need structural solutions. Um, I think there is a lot of, you know, I think like the movement for like corporate DEI in the past few years is really fraught. I think usually it is really well-intentioned, but then all it really means is that you have more like female CEOs or whatever. And is that really the thing that's contributing to a world of like greater equity and inclusion in a broader sense? Probably not. And so I think it makes a really big difference to put people in power who have people-centered values and aren't driven by ego, which is much harder said than done. I think that at the end of the day, like the viability of institutions to be able to be people-centered really comes from who you put in positions of power. It kind of doesn't really matter if you have an organizational like mission statement that says how much you believe in racial equity, if like your board is all straight white men who are 60 years old, you know, and I think that's something we think about really deeply when it comes to like who we're going to collaborate with as an institution, who we want to be in community with. It's like, okay, is this like a group or an institution or initiative that is, you know, tokenizing, like as Tiff was talking about before, where it's like diversity just for diversity's sake in a way that isn't truly like radical or revolutionary. Like diversity on its own is almost meaningless. There has to be a lot of intention behind diversity that actually comes from like an intention to build people power. I think this also really connects to a lot of issues with, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the term boba liberalism, but this is, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a cutesy term. I think it's very funny, but it's basically like this. It's sort of like Asian American politics that are really a lot more concerned with like representation than like truly tearing down our institutions and rebuilding them in a radical way. I think for me, a really good example of boba liberalism is Andrew Yang, um, who obviously ran for president and then for mayor of New York City. And, you know, a lot of, you know, Asian American neoliberal thinkers were like, well, isn't this great? Like, he's an Asian American and he's getting all this traction and popularity and he's running for office and whatever. And it's like, well, it doesn't really matter if the person is Asian American, if the values and platform that they're running on and supporting aren't actually going to lead to liberation for our communities like people of color can also be people who like perpetuate harm to our communities and that's why diversity as a goal in and of itself is really empty that's really good 
Yeah, that kind of reminds me. I remember when Joe Lieberman ran for vice president along on some ticket. I think it was Gore's ticket. My dad's all excited and everything like that. I'm like, Joe Lieberman, you're excited about Joe Lieberman? That's anyway, that's another conversation. <laughs> but <laughs> this makes me want to ask the question how do you feel people, regardless of how they identify, can show up as allies in a meaningful and productive way. I know this word allies is just like the most hated word of like 2020, 21 and and 22. It's kind of like this, you know, a way for white people to feel better in a certain sense. But I'm curious about how you engage with that concept of allyship or something like it with the work that you do. Hmm. Yeah, I I love that you said that allyship is not making white people feel better. I think that's very funny (laughs) and true. Sorry, go ahead, Tiff. Yeah, no, I was going to say that is tough because I think that, you know, I, I think that terms and ideas like allyship and solidarity are very fraught, right? And sometimes lacking of, in nuance. Like, I think that a lot of the times, right, people can just say, I am in solidarity or I am an ally, and that is enough <laughs> for them. Um, or, you know, I, de- I donated $15 to the ACLU. Um, and I think that the, I think that the way forward is not to just get like hung up right on like how you define yourself or like, you know, the words that you say as meaningful or meaningless as they are. I think that the way forward is just, once again, I think I keep on saying that word intention, but that's all it, that's all that really matters. Right. It's like, it's not all that matters. Obviously it's like both intention and action. Right. Uh, um, it's not, it's right. Praxis. Right. It's not just about like, you know, your ideas and your, like your ideology. It's also about how you put it into practice. Right. And so in terms of like, you know, allyship and solidarity, I feel like it both matters, right. Your intention of like why it is that you want to be an ally or in solidarity with a specific movement. Right. So if someone is white and they want to be in solidarity or an ally to like Asian Americans, then um, it matters, right? Why, why is it that they want to do that? Is it that they just like pity us? They feel bad that we're experiencing violence, right? Or is it because they want to see a world where no one, including Asian Americans, you know, black folks, right? Incarcerated folks will have, you know, have to experience violence, right? That I think is what matters. And then on top of that, right? How do you put it into practice? Is it just by, you know, donating $15 to like the biggest, most moneyed organization out there? there or is it you know by actually intentionally right like changing the way that you are talking in spaces you know what you're educating yourself on how you're educating your children or like young people in your life and yeah maybe where your money is going if that is something that you can control right if you have enough money to donate then like doing the research into right different groups that have different political alignments and like how you want them to be spending that money you know so if you are a person who was very moved by you know the Atlanta spa shootings for example like you know, maybe don't give your money to just like the biggest org who has the loudest voice, but like look into, you know, Red Canary Song, um, look into Swan Vancouver and Butterfly in Toronto and like look at the like really radical work that they actually are doing to like put the people, right, the victims, the survivors at the center of this issue and are actually doing like direct services to like support them it doesn't really matter what words you want to use to describe yourself in this like fight. It's all just about like what you do and I think how you show up. And I think that's going to 
matter way more to anyone than like what you want to label yourself as. And so people will like see that and respond to it well uh, versus like, you know, if you put up like a black square on your Instagram <laughs> and yeah, I don't, cause I've never judged any white person, right. Who wants to like align themselves with our issues and I'm seeing them showing up. I'm seeing them like, you know, with their relationships actually to people, you know, not just parachuting in and trying to like save us. You know, I think that if, if that's what you want for your life, if you envision yourself as being a good ally or, you know, like in solidarity with people of color, but you do not actually have a life or a lifestyle that looks anything like, you know, um, someone with those values, then, you know, it's obviously just like meaningless. I don't know. I think it's just, just try, you know, <laughs> just try, just work every single day to like be a better person. <laughs> I think a really important way to practice allyship that's not performative is to consistently look at the rooms that you're in both physical and you know metaphorical rooms or spaces and think about who's not there and how you can change that you know I think for myself it's like I am a cisgender able-bodied person who is really overeducated and has a lot of access to certain spaces and has a platform and so it's my job, given all of those things, to think about who's not there. Like if you're asked to like speak on a panel or if you're a hiring manager for a job or if you're, you know, all of us do operate in certain places where we have more power and visibility. And so allyship is about bringing in people who aren't there so that you're not speaking for people, you know? It's like your job as an ally is actually to sometimes take up less space and to use the space that you do have to bring in people who don't have the same access as you. And, you know, just building off of what Tiff said, which I totally agree with, is that I think that allyship is about solidarity, which is about love. And you can't really love something that you don't know. So I think that curiosity is so important when it comes to how you think about solidarity and love and thinking about, you know, your wellness or liberation is bound to that of other people with whom you might not think that you share a lot of things. It's really important to look at who you surround yourself with every day. Do you only read media or books or watch TV or hang out with people who look exactly like you and have the same experiences? Like that's something that you have a lot of control over and that's something that you can really change. And it's like you, if you are a person who has like even a little bit of curiosity about the world and likes to, you know, read books and expand your mind, it's like, that's actually a really important part of activism is like, there is such a wealth of knowledge media that exists that exists there for you to be able to consume so that you can live a little bit outside of your own experience to be able to understand how important it is that you don't just live within your own community and your own life. What are a few books that you might recommend to listeners who wish to engage with a diverse, mind-opening approach to political activism and feminism? Definitely the book that we're working on, which comes out in 2023. <laughs> but aside from that, well, I do want to shout out that we have a lot of resources of feminist theory and books and stories that we really love on our website at asianandfeminism.org. Something that we cite all the time together is this bridge called My Back, which is a compilation of writings from radical women of color. A lot of really famous writers and thinkers like Audre Lorde, who have really changed our lives and our perspectives. 
and help us to put our feminist understandings into practice in ways that have been really impactful. There are so many really good anthologies. One that I love as someone who thinks a lot about like sexual liberation and reproductive justice is Yes Means Yes, which is a book about envisioning a world without rape and what it means to actually live out and create sex positive cultures and communities. And a book that I return to all the time is Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown, who really talks a lot about how seeking pleasure and building pleasure and honoring pleasure in your life is a huge part of what it means to be alive. And that is a political practice for people who have been denied the ability to have pleasure, people who come from marginalized communities. And I return to that a lot when I need a reminder that, you know, activism should always be joyful. I'm going to put in my plugs for Bell Hooks, All About Love, as well as The Body Is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. These are both books that I've felt like really solidified, I guess, my politics or my political vision um, and did so in a way that worked both on expanding my world vision on like what it means to be an activist, um, but then also really hyper focuses on the personal as well, you know, the ways that we engage with ourselves or with our communities or our families or our friends or our loved ones. Um, Since, you know, all about love is all about love as a practice and like, you know, how do we do it correctly? (laughs) Is there even a correct way to do it, you know? And how do we also like use love as a political praxis as like an ethic? And so, and then of course, uh, Sonia Renee, Renee Taylor's book um, is a lot more about shedding um, fat phobia, anti-blackness, um, you know, and just engage or just really accept self-acceptance and radical self-love as also another practice, right? That is anti-racist or you know anti-white supremacy, and that you know a lot of the times, right? This like political work that we want to do in like envisioning, right? Like an outside world that reflects how we feel on the inside also needs to be done internally, you know, because you can't like go out into the world and be like, I'm a black, you know, I'm an ally to like black lives or whatever, but then internally you are actually shaming yourself for having features that might, you know, not be Eurocentric. So yeah, those are two books that I really highly suggest, especially to people who are wanting to do a lot of more of that like internal work as well. Our website is asianandfeminism.org and we're really active on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at aafc.nyc and at AAF Collective on Twitter. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you're enjoying the show, please support us by sharing on social media or by going to your favorite podcast player and leaving a review. It really does help. Until next time, be well. <laughs>